The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. A couple of years ago, my friend and a producer uh, of this show, Ivan Cronenfeld, called me. Let's do a show on dogs' ability to detect cancer, he said. I have to admit I was a little skeptical, but uh, my friend Ivan has a way of seeing around corners, as they say, so I paid attention. And uh, what we've learned is there have been many amazing and wondrous stories in the media in which dogs have alerted their owners to cancer. Uh, recently, Fox News interviewed uh, renowned children's author and illustrator Susan uh, Castriata. She recounted how her dog, a Havanese, was sniffing and poking at her breast for months before a mammogram revealed cancer in that exact same place. Uh, we have the astounding story of a Steve Warner, whose uh, doctors were unable to find the cause of ringing uh, in his ears. His golden retriever, Wrigley, began to obsessively sniff at his right ear. Werner thought his dog was trying to tell him something and insisted that the doctors perform uh, an MRI. A benign tumor the size of a ping-pong ball on the right side of his head was discovered, the same side Wrigley had been focusing on. Uh, our research team here has found tons of similar stories from all different parts of the world. We know that dogs have an amazing sense of smell, but can they really detect cancer? Scientists have begun to study this phenomenon, and the results are, are pretty darn interesting. Uh, to help us understand this new line of scientific investigation, we have two incredibly knowledgeable guests on the show today, Dr. Uh, Alexander Burnett and, uh, and Donna Wall. Dr. Uh, Alexander Burnett is professor of uh, gynecologic oncology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Uh, before coming to the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences nearly 10 years ago, Dr. Burnett held the position of Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and served as Vice Chairman on the Institutional Review Board of the University of Southern California. Uh, Dr. Burnett also served as a medical advisor for a major television network. He has contributed to peer reviews, book chapters, other professional publications, uh, focusing on cervical cancer and other gynecologic disorders. Dr. Burnett, I could go on, but I think folks are getting a, a sense of your extensive uh, background and training. I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you. You're very kind. 
Uh, we also have uh, joining us today Donna Wall. Donna is president of the American Scent Dog Association. Their mission is to use canine scent capabilities to serve human needs. Donna started working with search and rescue dogs 10 years ago. Uh, her dog, John D., has been awarded the 2013 Hero Dog of the Year Award uh, in the search and rescue category by the American Humane Association. The overall Hero Dog winner will be named at a Hollywood event on October 5th from amongst winners in each of these working groups. The ceremony will air nationally on the Hallmark Channel on October 30th. Donna, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, I want to jump in, Dr. Burnett, and start with you. Um, Before talking about the study that you are leading on this topic, I'd like to take a step back so that our listeners can understand the challenge you and the medical community are facing with ovarian cancer. According to a recent report by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, there is currently no widely accepted screening option for ovarian cancer, which is one of the diseases in which you specialize. Why is ovarian cancer so hard to detect, and what are the consequences of that? Well, it is difficult to detect, and there have been a number of things tried, including radiographic studies, physical examinations, different laboratory studies on on blood tests, and different studies where we've tried to prompt women on what could be perhaps early signs or symptoms that they could experience. And none of them to date have panned out as being successful at picking up this disease in an early stage. And the reason ovarian cancer is so deadly is because 75% of the women are diagnosed when they're either stage three or four, the higher the stage at the time of diagnosis, the worse the prognosis. So there's a, there's a tremendous need for a, some sort of screening test that can hopefully pick up this disease in early stage. In early stage. And just like most cancers, that early stage detection is so important in terms of curing the disease or at least uh, leading to a longer term uh, uh, survival uh, with, with uh, most cancers that we, uh, uh, that we see here. Um, Dr. Burnett, what set you on this particular path of inquiry um, with dogs? This is very, I think for some folks, very unusual, uh, uh, very conventional. It's why I think it was important for us to uh, 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 to uh, to read your resume and read your uh, read your background because you've had uh, conventional medical and oncology uh, training. Yes, and I've also had the conventional experience of always having dogs. So <laughs> I'm well well recognized the uh, the ability of dogs to do some tremendous things. But really, in in I suppose the 1980s, early 1990s, there were more, as you sort of talked about, anecdotal reports of people uh, having their cancer detected by their own dog. And the first area that really got investigated was on skin cancers and melanomas to see if dogs could sniff out these areas. And there were some early reports that suggested that they might be able to. Now, since then, there have been reports in in breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer, and studies done uh, in these different diseases that have shown that dogs can consistently pick up a scent that is produced by the cancer we don't know what that is. And frankly, at this point, I don't care what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm far more interested in does it exist, can the dogs detect it, and can we use that to try to screen for earlier stage disease? 
so we're going to talk a little bit more uh, uh, as we get into the show about your research and about the study and, you know, as you said, taking some of these experiences and really putting them through some, uh, uh, some scientific rigor, and we're going to drill down on that. But, Donna, let me welcome you into the conversation. Uh, wh- uh, why don't you tell our listeners how you uh, got involved in this work of, uh, of dogs uh, sniffing and detecting cancer? Sure. I started in search and rescue because it was something that allowed me to work with a dog and do things that I thought would be a great service to the community and certainly a challenge to things I thought I didn't know that I could do. Um, Certainly going out in a disaster in the middle of the night and rescuing someone with a dog was a new thing to try. But the more I saw about what the dogs were capable of doing, I was amazed. One particular search, John Dee was on a boat and had to find someone 85 feet down in a fast current in a river. Mm. And he had no problem finding that gentleman. Mm. When we got off the boat, John D. went straight to the same woman, and he just leaned against her. And Mm. she told me, when you first got here, I'd whispered in your dog's ear, you're my only hope, please, please find my child, bring my baby back to me. We couldn't bring her son back to life. We brought closure. But from that, she said, take this, this tragedy and what these dogs can do. Any dog that can find a person at the bottom of a river, take that hope, turn it into hope for someone else, some way, somehow. Mm. When Dr. Burnett came to me and said, what do you think? Do you really, really believe the dogs can do this? I'll stake my background on it if you tell me you think it can be done. And I said, we just found someone in the river. There's a mother who's staking hope from her tragedy on what the dogs can do. We're in. If any dog can do it, it's John D. <laughs> Go John D. We're gonna and we're gonna hear more about John D. But um, I think um, I think what you're saying is is important. And and, and you know, Dr. Burnett, I think we get you know we get to this issue of uh, again, this is a fairly you know unconventional course of medical study. Um, we're, we're getting up to our first break here, but but this really is is sort of described as a, as, as a fir- first of its kind work and first of its kind uh, research. Um, how did your peers? Re- Act, uh, when you announced that you were going to uh, 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 to, to do this study, were they sort of re- ready to kind of run, run you out the door, or were they kind of open to the idea of something as unconventional as what we're describing? Well, I think when you look at all the conventional things and really the amount of money that have been put into conventional means of trying to screen for this deadly disease, and we've seen it hasn't worked, people are ready to try anything that will work. The other thing is... Uh, Almost all the people that I work with are animal lovers and have dogs and things like that. And, you know, it's it's not hard to convince a dog owner that dogs can do some pretty incredible things. So I have, and, I've had very little blowback, as it were, uh, regarding that. And when you say, so we have talked about, you know, you heard me at the top of the show talk about some of the, you know, some of the incredible uh, media stories. I even heard a story on the news uh, uh, this week about a dog uh, trying to alert its owners to the fact that the nanny was abusing their child um, and really trying to get sort of between the child and the nanny every time the nanny would show up in the morning, you know, morning for work. And we're talking about the, these anecdotal things, but the work you're doing, the study you're doing is is described as the, the, the first of its kind in a scientific context. Can you tell us about that? In terms of using a specific scent to try to detect ovarian cancer, yes. 
And we've gone through a very rigorous uh, training program for the dogs that Donna and I designed together. And I think it's because it's been so rigorous in the way we put it together, the data is really going to stand. Fantastic. I, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, our show today is about dog detectives. Can man's best friend sniff out cancer? We have two uh, wonderful guests, Dr. Alexander Burnett, professor of gynecologic oncology at the University of Arkansas for medical sciences, and Donna Waugh, president of the American Scent Dog Association. They are embarking on a study to see if dogs uh, can detect uh, ovarian cancer and sniff out ovarian cancer. Um, we have a lot to get to uh, on the show. I really want to drill down on the study and how the study is being, being conducted. want to learn more about these dogs, including your dog, Donna, John D. And I know, uh, Dr. Burnett, you've got five dogs in, uh, uh, in your life, so we've got a lot of dog lovers uh, on the show. And aside from being our best friend, what can they offer uh, in this uh, medical conversation? This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back to talk more about this fascinating topic. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Voices have incredible power. 
They can provide much needed comfort or bring a person to tears. And when you have a rare blood cancer, the voices of others who share similar experiences can be uplifting. That's one of the goals of Voices of MPN, a program developed by Insight Corporation and supported by MPN advocacy groups to promote greater awareness of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs. This initiative shines a light on these rare conditions to encourage unity, connection, and support. The cornerstone of the program is a website, www.voicesofmpn.com, that offers information, resources, and ideas for community engagement activities. Through the Voices of MPN campaign, you can also acknowledge individuals and organizations who have elevated MPN care by nominating them for MPN Heroes recognition. Or you may choose to post pictures or a few sentences about an individual or organization on the wall of voices. Visit www.mpnheroes.com to learn more. Raise your voice, nominate your heroes, and join Insight in promoting awareness of MPNs today. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and Azi. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Today we're here talking about whether or not dogs can detect cancer, and in particular ovarian cancer, for which there is uh, no real reliable screening tool. With us are uh, Dr. Alexander Burnett and Donna Waugh. Dr. Burnett is Professor of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Dr. Burnett is leading a study on the subject of uh, uh, on this subject in particular, he is working with Donna Wall, president of the American Scent Dog Association. Um, Donna, how uh, did you select the dogs that are participating in the study? What can we know about them? What you know? What's unique? Are they special dogs that are involved in the study? Oh, they're incredibly special. Um, they're all from shelters, and they all started out needing a home, and perhaps what alerted us to know they were the dogs for us was maybe that special tilt of their head, that sparkle in the eye where you just know. So what I'm telling you is it doesn't take a pedigree. There are no championships required. What we look for is the dog that has what we call malleability factor. So it tells you, I want to work with you. That's the dog that if I throw a tennis ball it gets the ball and brings it back to me, and it nudges your hand, and it says, do something with me. Um, all the dogs that we initially put into the study had already had a find to their credit in search and rescue, so we knew these were our highest, most skilled, functioning search and rescue dogs because clearly we want people to understand this study is based on science and dogs that do understand scent and responding to a command to find scent that we've taught them. So, so let's drill down on that a little bit more with regard to uh, to, uh, to breed, uh, Donna. A friend, a friend once told me about landing in 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 Havana, Cuba, and seeing airport security approach the the, the plane with dogs. And I think in that instance, we're we're sort of used to seeing you know German shepherds or um, uh, you know she assumed they were searching for drugs, but they were using a cocker spaniel. And she thought, mm-hmm. well, they can't be looking for drugs with this cute little you know cocker spaniel. It wasn't quite the same impact as like maybe a barking or a growl. Uh, 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 German Shepherd. So what you're saying is that there are not, or that we know of at this point anyway, particular breeds that are better suited 
for, for, for this kind of work? I mean, are we, do we think that all dogs have the same uh, uh, sense of smell and ability to smell? I mean, what are we learning about that? Well, certainly we favor herding breeds such as Border Collies, that's what John D is, Australian Shepherds, German Shepherds, and Labs. You're very typical working dogs, but most of the dogs in our study are not full-blooded dogs. They came from shelters, which tells you that a dog that has the personality has the ability to learn to do this. Perhaps even in the shelter when we look for them, it's the problem child dog, the dog that wants to do more than hang out, watch TV, fetch a tennis ball. Um, One of the most important factors of any of the dogs is the ability to have and exhibit intelligent disobedience. And that's an interesting concept. And the best way to describe it is the seeing-eye dog, you come to a street corner, the dog is told, cross the street. A car's coming. And even though the dog is being given a command, the dog won't do it. And the dog will disobey because they so understand the concept. That's important in detecting cancer because ideally, someday, we're going to have samples where we don't think it should come from somebody with cancer. They don't have the symptoms. And that dog has to insist, nope, you're wrong, they've got it. No matter what, they have to insist when they think they have what we call a hot or malignant sample. So, Donna, I'm just going to have to tell you, I'm going to have to call my mom after the show and tell her that it was not stubbornness or defiance that she had in me when I was a young girl. It was intelligent <laughs> exactly. disobedience. That, that's a, exactly. That's a, it's a great euphemism. I think she's going to, I think she's going to appreciate that. <laughs> um, Donna, what do we know? What does the science tell us about how formidable a dog's ability to smell is? What do we know about that? Well, what we know is that dogs have a sense of smell that we really can't possibly understand. Scent is like a neon light for them. They understand it in ways we can't possibly understand. They can follow it far, far away from where the original source is and far, far after the scent is left. For example, we have dogs that will match items belonging to a person who is deceased to their cremated ashes. So if that that gives you an idea of how incredibly capable the dogs are, um, that should do it. But we also know a lot of times they will say a dog can detect a drop of water or a drop of blood in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Mm. And at this point, we don't have an earliest threshold that the dogs can't find cancer. So we're going to find out what the dogs can do. I don't know that anybody really knows right now, except it's amazing. Wow, it is. It is really. Uh, it is really amazing. And and um, I, you know, our, our uh, as I said earlier in the show, our organization represents the merger of the wellness community and Gilda's Club. And Gilda Radner is named after Gilda Radner, and she used to stay, say for the, you know, kind of different interventions that were kind of out there and weren't proven, she would kind of call them woo woo. And I think that, um, you know, I think some folks listening may think, oh my gosh, this is just some woo woo that these folks are are talking about today. But I but I know that this spring, uh, sixty 
Minutes did an unforgettable story on the dogs that serve in the military, special forces. We saw a dog parachute out of a plane with his human partner. Uh, just really unbelievable. Anyway, one trainer was quoted as saying that the military would use these special, uh, specially trained dogs in every mission if there were enough of them. And a, uh, a Taliban commander told CBS News that they had orders to shoot dogs first and then soldiers. So we trust dogs to sniff out bombs, uh, to sniff out drugs, to search for our missing, to search for our dead. Why do you think that there's resistance to the idea that a dog could actually accurately sniff out cancer? I'm going to ask that to you first, Donna, and then ask Dr. Burnett to weigh in as well. Sure. I think we've all been conditioned that the more technologically advanced anything involving our health is, the more we want to believe in it. So the more complex the treatment, the more technologically advanced the machinery, the CAT scanner, the MRI, the better. Well, we have what we're going to call a dog scan because dogs can. And the dogs can't be made. We can make the MRI. We can make the PET scanner, the CAT scanner. We can't make a dog. But it's very difficult to look at a dog when it's sitting with a squeaky toy, pulling the eyes out of it and think, hmm, that's a scientific tool. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is hard to 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 get our heads around these sort of unconventional um, ideas. And I'm sure the idea of building trust in dogs in these other contexts didn't happen overnight. And it certainly took time. Uh, Doctor Doctor Burnett, as a, as a as a medical doctor, as a scientist, as a as a uh, uh, as a researcher, why do you think there's resistance? And you know, what is it going to take to mo- move this into a more sort of acceptable part of our society? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily in medicine there's resistance to this. There are just so many fascinating things that dogs are doing today. For instance, dogs are being trained to detect when a child goes into hypoglycemia, a diabetic child. Mm. You know, we, there are none of us that would walk in an airport, see a dog sniffing through luggage and think, eh, it's just a dog. He'll never find whatever's in there. I mean, come on. We know the ability of these animals to pick up minute uh, sense. And it's, I think it's just a process now of trying the more interesting process or, or question is, is there a specific scent associated with ovarian cancer as opposed to another type of cancer? And that's one of the things that we're investigating. And so it's not just how the dog is doing it, but what they're actually smelling and what it is that, that's being triggered versus other smells that a dog might come across through the course of a day. Could be, although the way that they're trained is so specific for one particular tissue that there really is very little confounding element to it. I mean, they just they hit or they don't hit. It's really that easy. We, when we originally designed how we were going to record the dogs, I had made up a scale of uh, 1 to 10, where 10 was just uh, positive as positive as a dog could be, and zero was as negative as a dog could be. And we realized there's there's no scale to this. It's either yes or no. These dogs are very emphatic. Either it's there or it isn't. Donna, is it true that that dogs are able to identify uh, different smells that combine uh, to make a whole, for example, we, we, you know, we as a human might smell uh, beef stew, but a dog would be able to smell each individual uh, vegetable, the meat, the herb, that they smell those things uh, uh, separately. How, how are we learning about the sophistication of a dog's sense of smell? 
Well, one thing that we do with the dogs that's crucial in search and rescue, very frequently we need a scent object, and the mother of the missing child brings the teddy bear to us. She's holding it, squeezing it, and she hands it to us, and as she's handing it to us, the father grabs it, and then the little brother grabs it, and we've got a teddy bear, and we need the scent from the child from that beloved teddy bear, but we have three other people that have now touched it. The dog can eliminate every scent on that teddy bear except the one person who's not there right then, and that's the missing child. We do that all the time. And since we've done that, I've done it now for 10 years with dogs where we see them discriminating, it it isn't difficult for the dogs. We just can't understand how very complex and advanced their ability to detect and understand scent is. We talk by email. Dogs communicate everything by what we call P-mail. Wow, it's amazing. Uh, Dr. Burnett, we've only got a minute or two till our break here, but um, are, are you hearing from naysayers? What are they saying, or do you feel in any way you're putting your reputation on the line through this study? No, there, have, uh, there haven't been any of my colleagues that have said uh, anything particularly negative when I talk to them about what we've been doing with the dogs. In fact, probably the most common reaction is, why didn't I think about that and get involved in that? It, it, we're, you know, the community is open for anything that will work against cancer. Mm-hmm. And this, and uh, I, this seems a yeah. very promising avenue. Yeah, and I, I would uh, I would say you know every day we're on the we're we're, we're seeing uh, headlines talking about the rising cost of healthcare and how uh, expensive and out of control uh, things are getting, and this seems like it could not just be an effective intervention, but also a cost uh, effective intervention. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about whether uh, whether dogs, a man's best friend, can sniff out cancer in some of the studies and research that's happening in that area. We're going to take a quick break. Much more to talk about. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. 
how to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Genentech and Morphotech. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Today I'm joined by Alexander Burnett uh, and Donna Wall, and we're talking about dogs and the studies to determine their accuracy in detecting cancer, in particular ovarian cancer, for which there is currently no widely accepted screening tool. Dr. Burnett is a respected physician who has practiced medicine and taught on the collegiate level. He's authored textbooks, chapters for books, many articles for a number of medical journals. He is a highly sought-after authority who has presented over 50 talks and has served as a principal investigator for multiple research projects. He is also a dog lover with five dogs of his own. Donna Waugh is president of the American Scent Dog Association, whose mission is to use canine scent capabilities to serve human needs. Donna's dog, John D., has been named the 2013 Search and Rescue Hero Dog of the Year by the American Humane Association. Our congratulations, Donna, to John D. Give him a pat for us. I'll do it. Uh, (laughs) uh, Dr. Burnett, let's drill down a little bit on the study that we've been talking about. Uh, Can you describe for our listeners uh, in lay lay terms uh, uh, how the study is designed so that we can get to some accuracy on the question about whether dogs can detect ovarian cancer? The The initial training that we did was on fresh tumor from women who have ovarian cancer. Uh, tumor that was taken out at the time of their surgery. And we also would collect urine at the time of their surgery as well. And we also would collect uh, from women who had benign conditions a portion of their ovaries and their urine. Donna and her team worked to train the dogs specifically on the ovarian cancer tissue. And the dogs were able to, whatever they're picking up, whatever scent they're picking up, they would not pick up in the benign ovarian tissue. And we did this through many, many different specimens of ovarian cancer and many benign specimens as well. The next, okay. yeah, go ahead. So, uh, the next thing we did, which was amazing to me, was here's the dog's been trained on this solid chunk of cancer. Then we have the dogs in a blinded fashion where where we introduced urine um, in a room where we had several different cups. Some were hidden, some were out in the open, some were benign, some were malignant. The dogs immediately went to the cancer urine 
And to me, that was when the light really went off. Because if they can detect this scent in urine, that really spells the possibility of having a screening test here. So interestingly, um, Dr. Burnett, you mentioned earlier in the show that we're not really sure what they're smelling and that um, I'm just curious, and, and the fact that we're taking samples from different women who have obviously different biologies, so the idea is that there's something, that there's potentially in what you're seeing, something common in all of the cancers, even though they're coming from different women and different biological makeups. Is that, is that right? Each of the cancers we've used to date, we've used what are called serous carcinomas of the ovary which is the most common type by far. And that's what we've specifically trained the dogs on, and that's what we've specifically tested. Could there be other types of ovarian cancer that have a completely different scent pattern? Absolutely, there could be. And we won't know that till we get to those portions of the study. For now, we're concentrating on the most common type because that affects about 80% of women who develop ovarian cancer. But the samples you're using are coming from multiple women, different women. Exactly. So the commonality is in the type of cancer is what you're saying, or that's what we believe. That's right. So, so Donna, let's talk for a minute about the training. Um, uh, when Dr. Burnett references what the dogs have been trained on, you, you've said that you can train a dog in three hours to detect cancer. How, how is that possible? What is the process for training dogs to do this kind of work? Well, I guess I should say, how is it possible it took that long? Um, because now we've gotten even faster. That day we had five dogs, and at the end of that training session, each of the five dogs successfully found the malignant tumor. And then with the urine, each of them found the urine with the malignant scent to it. There was no hesitancy. Each of the dogs did it. So now as we bring new dogs into the study, we know now more specifically what to look for in the dog. We've gotten quicker, faster, better on imprinting the dog. And we've got it down now when we worked with a different type of cancer. We got John D. imprinted on that scent in 54 seconds. It was timed. It was filmed. It's amazing. Dogs are all about scent. It all you're really doing is teaching them a noun and a verb. The, the verb is find, and the noun is whatever word you want to assign to the scent you want them to, to go after. They already understand finding scent. They've done that all their lives. That's what dogs do. So, so Dr. Burnett, in the study, so what is it that you're actually trying to prove in the study? Are you, can, can you just be a little bit more uh, specific about exactly what you're trying to prove or demonstrate through the study and, you know, kind of where that might lead? Well, what we've, what we've been able to show so far is that, as Donna has said, these dogs can be trained specifically for this scent. The next phase of the study that's opening shortly is to see how do the dogs do with 240 random samples where the trainers don't know if it's from a cancer or benign. Obviously, the dogs don't know. And um, it's going to be a wide collection of gynecologic problems as well as the cancers we're looking for. Now, that information and how the dogs do with that will determine what the specificity and sensitivity of this test is, what its positive and negative predictive values are. Mm -hmm. And that will really highlight where this falls in 
terms of what's been tried for screening tests. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite confident with watching how the animals have worked so far that the sensitivity and specificity are going to be far above the lab tests, the radiographic tests that we've had so, so far. But, but how, much, how much more research, how much time are we looking at to be able to say that, uh, you know, definitively that this would be a test that would be incorporated into mainstream medical detection of ovarian cancer? Well, I think that if uh, with our, our sensitivity specificity study that we're just opening, mm-hmm. if that proves that, that this really is superior to anything else we've got out there, then there's going to be a response from the federal community in terms of funding large studies. Obviously, to prove a screening test, you have to do enormous studies. Yes. And, uh, and they're very expensive. Yes. Um, this may be one of the least expensive ways that mm-hmm. we could do a screening test, but it still involves a lot of money, a lot of paperwork, a lot of bureaucracy, all that sort of thing. Uh, but I, the funds are certainly there if you have a test that's as promising as this appears to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as you said, certainly with ovarian cancer, we're, we're still a ways away from anything else looking terribly promising on the detection front. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. Now, you mentioned earlier, or you suggested, where else does this go from here? Yes. And one of the things you're sort of hinting at is, can we find out what specifically is creating this scent? that the dogs are smelling, you know, yes. what exactly they're smelling. And there, yeah. there are researchers who work on aromas and uh, know far more about that than I in terms of how to pinpoint as best as possible what this aroma may be. Mm-hmm. That, that may or may not lead to uh, automation of, of testing in the future or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that's, a, that's certainly something that could be foreseen down the road, but we're not quite to that point yet. So you're saying, uh, if I understand you, that this, uh, that this line of research could inform other lines of screening, research, and, and detection? Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Donna, we're getting um, to our break here, but, again, this training piece is really fascinating. It, it, can you just tell us, is training a dog for cancer detection different from training a dog for drug and bomb detection or for, for uh, search and rescue, which I know has been a focus of yours? The main difference between training for drug and bomb detection and training for the cancer is that we don't use toys as a reward. We use a treat. There's no way to use a toy when the dog is sent. There's no way to do that and throw a tennis ball across the lab. So we have to give the dog something that they find to be a high value. And in John D's case, he likes lobster. He wants lobster, he gets lobster. But search and rescue, it's a very active type of thing because the dogs are very much running, jumping, leaping to get to the person. Um, temperature is, is hugely important for when you schedule the search. A lab, you can monitor the temperature. You can come in, do it any day, any time. You don't worry about rain or ticks or spiders. So you can also use dogs that perhaps might have hip dysplasia or are too old to do search and rescue anymore. So you can have have them have a second career, perhaps, in finding cancers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Don, I have to tell you, I respond well to lobster, too. I'm just, uh, <laughs> just for the record, I want to put that out there. Um, we're just about at our break, Donna, but just uh, uh, quickly, we hear perhaps some of these dogs are responding to unconscious or unintentional cues from their handlers during uh, these kinds of trials. How do we guard against those cues? Well, the first thing we did is we did a careful study of the clever Hans phenomenon, which was the horse many, many years ago that everybody thought could read minds and was brilliant. In fact, it took very, very subtle cues. People don't understand how very subtle of a cue your dog can pick up or any animal. So for that reason, we always have the handler have the study being blind. The handler never knows where the scent is. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yes. So like in any good kind of clinical research, we're creating a certain blinded elements to the exactly. study to protect against bias. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Got it. Got it. Um, we, uh, we are talking about uh, a dog's ability to sniff out uh, cancer. We already know that, that the dog is man's best friend, but this could really uh, elevate the ranks of, our <laughs> uh, of, of, of dogs in our, uh, in our society as we look to this research and hear some of the fascinating advances uh, that are happening. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've got some more to cover here. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We're going to be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Voices have incredible power. They can provide much-needed comfort or bring a person to tears. And when you have a rare blood cancer, the voices of others who share similar experiences can be uplifting. That's one of the goals of Voices of MPN, a program developed by Insight Corporation and supported by MPN advocacy groups to promote greater awareness of myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs. This initiative shines a light on these rare conditions to encourage unity, connection, and support. The cornerstone of the program is a website, www.voicesofmpn.com, that offers information, resources, and ideas for community engagement activities. Through the Voices of MPN campaign, you can also acknowledge individuals and organizations who have elevated MPN care by nominating them for MPN Heroes Recognition. Or you may choose to post pictures or a few sentences about an individual or organization on the wall of Voices. Visit www.mpnheroes.com to learn more. Raise your voice, nominate your heroes, and join Insight in promoting awareness of MPNs today. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Millennium and Amgen. I'm Kim Tibaldo, your host, and we are talking about the scientific investigation of dogs' ability to detect cancer. This line of inquiry is particularly interesting for cancers like ovarian cancer that don't have uh, accepted screening tools and methods. Uh, with me today, we have Donna Wall and Alexander Burnett. Dr. Burnett is professor of gynecologic oncology at the University of Arkansas for medical sciences, um, and he is leading a study on this subject uh, and working with Donna Waugh, president of the American Scent Dog Association. Um, Dr. Burnett, I wanted to just go back to the question that we started to explore earlier. Um, this is not the kind of research or investigation that it seems would be funded um, by the pharmaceutical industry, um, as there would not be a, a, you know, a business or economic interest there. Um, you talked about the potential of some federal funding. Uh, you know, wh- wh- what is the length of your study when you uh, expect to wrap that study up? And if you've got some good, solid results, is there an avenue for federal or perhaps uh, other uh, sources of private funding? to continue to advance this research? There, there is. I mean, they're, they're actually through the National Cancer Institute. Um, if we're successful in our pilot here, the money will be there. I have no doubt about that mm-hmm. because they invest so much money into cancer screening uh, that really, if, you're, if you can come up with a successful screen, that gives you the most bang for the buck. If you're able to detect cancer when it's early and cure people, that saves you the most amount of money in the long run. So there's a, there's a, a lot of avenues, and the federal government would probably be the first uh, way to go. Uh, but certainly there are uh, a lot of private uh, foundations that have a great interest in not only in cancer and cancer detection, but also in dogs. And we can uh, perhaps meld these together uh, as we go forward. Well, and I also think uh, there are some private foundations who have an interest in studying some of the cost questions that we're talking about here. As you're suggesting, uh, uh, early detection of cancer not only gives a person the best opportunity for survival and even cure, but it uh, also theoretically will lead to some some cost savings. So the person can have a long, uh, productive life free of uh, free of illness. So I imagine there may be some funding sources, particularly with this um, swirling debate about the cost of health care. It seems, uh, Dr. Burnett, there may be some funding sources interested in the cost question. Would you think? Oh, I would. I would definitely think so. I think that uh, 
Well, first of all, we have to figure out how much John D's lobster costs, and that may, yeah, well, that may you know, bust we do have to factor that bit, in. But, yeah, maybe we could get no, some donations from Maine for that. Yeah, there, there's, there's no question that that these animals. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Donna will tell you that a, a good search and rescue dog will will live for anywhere from 12 to 20 years, and mm-hmm. once they've learned to detect whatever specific scent they're trained on, once they've been printed on that, they have that for life. Mm-hmm. So this is something that, with her skills as a trainer, potentially any community could start with a group of animals that could detect this. And maybe John D could even become a trainer. Trainer. Maybe there's sort of a train the trainer program, and you can have <laughs> we a. Do that. <laughs> we do. <laughs> sort of a mentoring uh, mentoring program. <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, they do follow each other. They really do watch and I, take. I you. bet they do. I bet they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a friend who's a history buff, and he reminded me that, that uh, the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates used to smell a person's breath mm-hmm. to try to diagnose their uh, their ailment. Uh, he associated a, a, a fishy smell with with liver disease, a urine-like smell with kidney issues, a sweet, fruity uh, mm-hmm. odor with uh, with with, uh, with with diabetes. Um, you know, as we move down the road here, Doctor Burnett, what do you see as the Again, it's the practical application of the work uh, that you are doing. I, I, we talked about the fact that we are so used to seeing dogs now with police departments, military, special ops. We don't even think twice about seeing a dog, uh, you know, uh, walking or you know, with someone walking around the Amtrak station, uh, uh, for example. Are we really thinking about and talking about incorporating this into kind of mainstream medical screening and detection of cancer? Yes, but it's not going to be a situation where the dog comes to the patient. It's going to be a situation where the sample comes to the dog. It wouldn't, it wouldn't quite be practical to have a dog walking around a doctor's office to, uh, to try to detect cancer. But having, having urine samples sent or virtually you know, any other type of bodily tissue may have this aroma within it uh, sent to a central area where the dogs work. Uh, yes, I, I certainly foresee that as being uh, a part of mainstream medical uh, technology. So, Dr. Burnett, you've been the uh, principal investigator for multiple research projects, mainstream medical-type research projects. How has this experience uh, been different for you? How has it affected you? How do you think your colleagues uh, view you as the lead on this study? Well, for one thing, it's been a lot of fun, of course, to work with the dogs, and uh Early on, we had them come up to my office when we were first starting all this, and and unfortunately, it meant we had too many people come into the office to watch them work and pet them and play with them. So we had to find a separate lab. But it just it, it's so enjoyable to see the incredible intelligence by these animals. Now I go home to my dogs and. I don't see that intelligence in my dogs most days, but I love them to death. But they're not—they're not sniffing out cancer. So these these animals, you know, the, it's the relationship between the trainer and the dog that really is the the most unique thing going on here. Well, I hope you didn't leave the radio on at home today and the dogs did not hear that comment, Dr. Burnett. Um, uh, we're really close to the end of our show, Donna, but how has being involved in this study impacted you? What's it been like for you? Well, it's amazing because while I've always told everybody that John D. is brilliant, now they actually understand why I'm buying lobster and giving it to the dog. And when I can do other things with search and rescue and advance how we train and get fat dogs up to 
to snuff faster, bring new dogs mm-hmm. in, teach them to find the scent, people mm-hmm. start understanding these are not fluffy in the backyard and all you can do is throw a tennis ball. These are very, very incredibly mm. talented animals. And it's not just John D. or yeah. dogs that have been trained. Any animal from the shelter has the potential. There's a hero waiting in a shelter right now. Mm. If someone just has to say, I'll give you the chance. Give you the chance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Burnett, you may have to have John D. over to tutor your dogs, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> there may be a whole other level of collaboration for you guys. Um, I thank you so much uh, for being with us today. I feel like we've barely uh, scratched the surface here. I hope that you will both come back um, and give us an update on your discoveries. I have a, a feeling this is going to be a very popular show, uh, a very popular episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and I'm sure folks are going to want to hear how your uh, research is um, uh, is progressing. This really does have the potential to be uh, uh, to be a game changer. So to keep up to date with the with the work of our guests, visit uh, the university's website uamshealth.com/cancer uh, to find uh, more about the study. And then uh, you can learn about the American Scent Dog Association and uh, take a peek at our buddy John D for Hero Dog of the Year. Go to search. DogsAssociation.com. Uh, it's uh, been a pleasure having you on the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening and for, frankly, speaking about cancer. Just a reminder, we have a host of free support services for people uh, with cancer at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You can call us at 888-793-9355. Whether your cancer has been detected by a dog or otherwise, <laughs> all of our services are uh, free, available to people with all cancers at all stage of illness and also for the family members and loved ones uh, of people with cancer. Fascinating show today. Thank you uh, for listening in to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo from the Cancer Support Community. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tebaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america health and wellness channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericahealth.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management